Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 12. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally acclaimed folk entertainer and author, Rick Polari. He's here to talk to us about his latest memoir, Banjo Man, Adventures of an American Folk Singer. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Barney. You know, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing, that you're giving authors a chance to be able to talk about their book. You know, we just went through this pandemic, and, and those of us who put out a, uh, a book during this time, it was very difficult to, to get any kind of attention. So it, it's really a gift that you're giving all of us to give us a platform in order to tell our story. You're, you're welcome. And you are, as we, as we said before we went on the air, you're, you're here in Vermont as well. You, you moved here in 1980. So uh, not born here, but I'm sure people people give you some credit knowing that at least, at least you've been here for 40 years. So that comes for a second, well, right? You know, it, it's, I, as I was explaining to you all, you know, before we started that, you know, Vermont is a hard teacher. And, uh, and, and rightfully so. You have to be tough to live here. Right. And you have to be able to get through the winters. And uh, I think that, you know, those people who don't have enough stamina don't stay. And that's why a lot of the, you know, the, that old joke about, you know, the person's been there for about five years and uh, and every day, you know, he waves to his neighbors and they never <laughs> acknowledge him. And then one day the the husband says to the wife, well, it's been here about five years. I think we'll wave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like you get one of your one of your friends, Al Poindexter from Florida, is watching. So yeah, Al. Al is a is a great artist himself. He's a, a five string banjo player, and he has a long neck banjo like me, and plays the twelve string guitar, and he puts out a lot of great albums. Uh, down and down he's over from you know that writer stetson kennedy okay you ever hear of him I've yeah him, yeah and so al has been associated with the stetson kennedy foundation down there in florida so it's always good to see al he, you know he kind of ups the game a bit yeah. well you're embarrassing him he's blushing he said so yeah <laughs> so 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 rick normally what we do is we 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 we, we jump in in this uh how, how we do things or we jump in and have people talk about the bit of their background but you just as you said you just published a 526 memoir called banjo man that again you know, 526 pages that is uh that's so so what do we want to do is kind of for, maybe what we should do is just jump in for you to kind of talk about you know, talk about the memoir because, in a way, you're also be talking about your background and how you got into sure. how, how the book was created. And I'm curious, also, halfway through the conversation, is um, the how is Banjo Man different from your the book you came out in 2004 called the uh, The Road Is My Mistress? So, how are the differences between question. those two? You know, because when I wrote the first book, yeah, you no, know, uh, I have a copy. Here, my wife is a hand bookbinder, so this Ooh. is my presentation copy, you see. Okay. It's fancy dancy. When I wrote this book, I didn't really know anything, uh, Arnie, about writing books. Yeah. And I, it, it was very crazy because I was at a, a, <laughs> I was at a, a hobo gathering. Uh, and it was a bunch of old hobos. And there was this guy, Fran, the hobo minstrel 
who was putting together these little pamphlets for the different hobos. Because it was an old, old tradition for the traveling people that, you know, you would have a little book that you could sell on the, you know, as you're passing through town. And so he had done that for some of the old hobos. And he said, Rick, I'd like to, to help you and make you a book. Well, I said, yeah, that would be great. And he had no idea what he was in for. Because instead <laughs> of getting like the usual 50, you know, odd pages or, or less, you know, he was getting hundreds of pages. And he had these these computers that he put together from the dumpster. So he had like them, like Frankenstein computers and they were corrupting all the files and we didn't know what we we're doing. So all the files are coming in, they're corrupted. I'm sending them here, sending them there. Right. And, uh, and, you know, finally, you know, we decided that uh, this was going to be a real book. Yeah. You know, this was not going to be the, uh, like anything he did before. And so that's when I really started seriously deciding that, you know, people had been saying, you know, Rick, you should write a book. We like your storytelling. And I had a whole bunch of different things that I had written over the years that were in my file draw, uh, you know, some for little magazines and, you know, but the thing is, you know, going back, if you turn back the clock when I was in, you know, a young kid growing up in New Jersey, I really uh, hated to write. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even carry a pencil. And my teachers would go, Richard, where's your pencil? And I didn't have a pencil. <laughs> I, I, I didn't like to write. Uh, and it wasn't until years later when I was living in Poland for, I had a, a fellowship from the Polish government. And uh, Pete Seeger sent me this letter, you know, who was my mentor, who I learned a lot from Pete. And he was the one who said, Rick, are you keeping a journal? It's important. You got to write everything down. And I mean, it's Pete. So of course I, you know, I started writing a journal and I've been writing a journal ever since then. And it was the, be, between the journal and the, the, the things that were in my file cabinet that I started putting together this book. And it was hard. I mean, for those people out there who have been thinking about writing a book, uh, I think it's, it's one of the most, um, most difficult and rewarding things that you can do. Right. Because it really is hard, especially if you don't know what you're doing you, and, you, and, and you're working with a bunch of hobos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you learn along the way. Right. And and the thing is that uh, why I, you know, so I went from from, you know, the, the original book. I'll show you the type, the cover here is this is this is the original book that's inside of this finely bound leather. And the new book is this. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, and my friends, they tease me. They said, Rick, most people write a book that you can't put down. You wrote a book you can't pick up. <laughs> <laughs> and so the reason, the reason that I wrote this book was at 2003, when I, I, I published this first book, a lot of the seeds were planted, but the trees didn't grow yet. Okay. Okay. So there were a lot of things put in motion. I, I was starting to do things. And it, it wasn't until after the book came out that I started really doing a lot of the things that I had dreamt about. That's when I started, you know, playing with Utah Phillips. You know, I had just met him then, but, you know, we started doing some concerts. I started doing the bigger concerts. I started doing more international travel. And, uh, and the sad part, Barney, to tell you the truth, the reason I had to write this book is 
because all my mentors passed away. Right. Yeah. I had mentioned them in the first book and it was time to say goodbye. Right. And I felt it was really important for me to have that closure and to tell tell these people what, you know, and and share the lessons that I learned from these great mentors. And and I I mean that in in the best of ways. I mean, you know, Pete Seeger, Utah Phillips, Jimmy Driftwood are legendary kind of characters. Uh, there was Sis Cunningham. There were so many people, and they all, they all saw that you were you were trying to carry on this old tradition, and they were there to give you what you needed, right. and uh, and help you to grow. And uh, I felt that there would be people who are getting involved in this music, and they wouldn't have that opportunity to meet these people. So I wanted to share everything that I experienced so that if somebody was learning about folk music or getting passion involved in folk I was when I was a kid, that they could read what, what was Pete Seeger really like? You know, what was you know Utah Phillips? How was it to sit around and 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 talk with Utah or or Jimmy Driftwood who wrote the Battle of New Orleans? So it it became um uh, an important part of my mission in the book to do that is put all those stories and 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 actually have the things that they told me in this book so that you know people could learn from that. Right. And so that was your, so that was basically, as you're saying, is like your, it's, it, it's almost this memoir was, you know, uh, almost an homage to your mentors as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. It, it, it was, uh, I guess it was almost like a love letter <laughs> to, to say thank you for yeah. all, all of the things that, that, uh, that I learned from them because they, they changed my, my world. They, they they really did. And um, the kind of of life that I was blessed to live for so long, you know, um, I mean, because this is like, you know, this pandemic put stopped it. Right. You know, for a whole year. I've been just talking to screens until recently. Yeah. And uh, but I've done an awful lot of traveling. Right. Uh, and I, I did uh, school tours that took me to all the lower 48. I played in every state in the lower 48. And then later on, I went up to Alaska and went to Hawaii. So I've been in every, you know, every state in the United States and, and did some sort of performance. And then, uh, you know, in Australia, in Israel, in Turkey, over in uh in Scotland and Poland and Germany and France and Spain, all of these experiences, uh, I met with musicians, and that's in the book too, right. about you know being with uh, all these wonderful musicians. So on one hand, you have these well-known musicians, but on the other hand, you have a lot of people that you never heard of, but they're just as important, like my friend Lon Austin from over in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, who runs all of these festivals and 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 makes things happen, you know? And uh, people over in Germany that, that I know. There's all of these people, Barney, that really love this music, 
so much that they're willing to go way beyond just the fact of playing it, but they love it so much they want you to love it too. Right. So they're going to create an opportunity for you to uh, participate in it. Right. And, and that's in the book too. So that's the other part of that, you know, giving gratitude for all these people who do that, you know, who do the community radio stations, you know, who do the community TV, who do all the things like, like you're doing right now, you know, so that other people can benefit from your work. And so talk to us about, uh, like you mentioned it before with the, with the pandemic and things have closed down. Um, there's, a, there's a term that I learned that it's the opposite of homesick. It's called the way sick. So as somebody who travels as that and did that, did you suffer a lot being having to be locked down, suffering from some away sicknesses? And, and how did you deal with that? Oftentimes, my mind would flash onto an obscure street in the middle of Europe or somewhere in Australia. I would just see a place. Yeah. And, you know, it, there was so many visions in my mind that uh, from all the years traveling. So it was... It, I miss the people, but I also just miss being in certain places. Right. And like I said, it sometimes it was like just a round, roundabout in the middle of England that I used to go, <laughs> go to, you know, do tours in. Yeah. Uh, but it also gave me a lot of time to think and to think about all the years that I spent out on the road. You know, I did 10 years uh, of tours in Germany. 10 years over in Scotland and England. Uh, so there's a lot of time right. getting to know those people. But the thing was, I was doing that and I didn't know as many people here because mm. I was out on the road. So a lot of people, they wouldn't even know that if I'd be home, they wouldn't even think of calling me because I was never here. Yeah. And so I... I really just a few years ago was inspired by um, a, a lot of people like Michael Jonathan, who does wood songs uh, radio, and and George Hamilton uh, the fifth, uh, who does this thing called Viva Nash Vegas. And I said, you know, it would be really cool to try to put together some community things. So from Michael Jonathan, we we kind of worked out this this idea of a song farmers. Uh, group where people from the community just get together to play music and talk and and it's not about a performance and for the you know for the, from Vida Nash Vegas I put together the great Vermont barn dance where it was like a 1940s kind of radio show where everybody got to you know go around one microphone and sing together and there was a variety show with storytelling and music and uh, yeah, I talk about some of these things, you know, in the book also about the importance of community. And, uh, you know, because if you don't have community at home, then it's always the grass is always greener. You're always thinking about what's out there. And what you want to start doing is, is have the same appreciation for your community here and to take once again what you've learned and try to share it with the community. Right. So talk to us a little bit about the the actual book itself. So as we, it's a memoir. Does it start 
um, back in the early seventies when you like a few years before you started playing with Pete Seeger? Does it start? Oh, it starts when I was born. <laughs> uh, it starts when my you know my father in the Navy and and uh, and him hitchhiking back to uh, my mother's already in the hospital and he's hitchhiking back and he doesn't have much money. He has only enough money to buy a bus ticket or he could take that money and buy a bouquet of flowers. So he buys a bouquet of flowers and doesn't realize how far it was to, to walk. <laughs> By the time that he got there, all the flowers were <laughs> And uh, that's sort of like, you know, that this kind of, you know, you, one of the things that, you know, you gotta be real. Right, Barney, you got to be real. It's right. it's not like okay, you know, you're this musician and traveling all this stuff. But where did you start? Right. And and this whole idea. And I, I was just reading the story, you know, on on my little live stream about my, you know, when I was a young kid, and uh, because my father was hiding this fact that he was dyslexic, and my mother was from Poland and she didn't read them. weren't, weren't a lot of books until I got my encyclopedias and that fired up my imagination. And then I had this imaginary friend that I didn't know about. I only found out about it. I was reminded about it you know, a few years ago, who was like this professor. Uh -huh. And this professor would like take me on adventures you know, on hot air balloons and, uh, you know, in Africa and all kinds of things. And my parents thought I was a little bit wacky. Uh, and uh, but my imagination was fired up and I was like having all these adventures. Right. But those adventures actually became reality yeah. later on in my life. And, and, and that's what I was talking about earlier was that um, the the seeds of creativity were in me since I was a little boy. And I was looking for a way to express myself. And it wasn't until I found music that it opened the door. And so, yeah, because that's every time you like, you know, you know, reading a, a memoir of a of a musician of some sorts. Who was the person that put that instrument in your hand? Well, you know, the, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, you know, as a as a young person, you you have a, a lot of musical exper ex experiments. Let's right. say where you try this instrument and you you're trying to find something that's right for you. Right. And it wasn't until the banjo came into my life that uh that everything changed you know and this is my banjo uh, that's been with me since the very beginning really okay. yes this is my banjo and uh you know i uh th there's a lot of funny stories that that are in the book one one that pete really loved was i was trying to to learn how to play this banjo and i didn't know that the difference between a five string banjo and a four string so I, I my mom made me take lessons at this this uh, music store, and he didn't play the banjo. He had a le, le, an electric Les Paul with a Mel Bay book, and I had this tenor banjo, and I was I, I was wondering why it didn't sound right. right. And one day I I happened to see Pete Seeger on TV, you know, on Sesame Street, and he had this five string banjo, and I uh, I went back to that instructor and I said, Well, I saw this guy he has a five string banjo. And he says, listen, kid, you learn how to play these four strings and we'll drill a hole and stick another peg in. We <laughs> knew nothing about the banjo. And, uh, and of course, I, I was able to get a Pete Seeger instruction book and I learned, uh, taught myself, you know, the simple strums that, that were in the book. And it was, I, this is a fun story. This is in my book. 
So here I'm trying to learn how to play the, this is before I met Pete. So I'm still in high school and I'm hitchhiking around and I'm with my high school buddy who I kind of talked him into the, the fact that he could play the mandolin. <laughs> so he had his mandolin and we're hitchhiking uh, and we go, we hear about this place in New Jersey called Albert's Cabin. Uh -huh. Albert's cabin and it was like this hunter's lodge in the middle of the pine barrens and so we we get down to uh down in southern jersey in a music store and we're talking we don't know where we're going well, all we know is like Albert's cabin so we're going like we talked to the guy I said did you ever hear of Albert's cabin and the guy goes well boys I'm going there tonight you can come with me so <laughs> we you know we just climb in the back of his car and we're driving down the New Jersey we're driving down the J New Jersey turnpike and all of a sudden, no, it was the Garden State Parkway. And he's driving, and then he makes a quick turn, and now he's driving on the opposite side of the road the wrong way, and uh -huh. he goes into the woods. Now, Barney, you can imagine. Now, here we are, young kids, and we're getting freaked out. Right. Like, who is this guy? We just went down the wrong way, down the, 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 the highway, and now we're in the woods. And then there was like all these abandoned refrigerators and all kinds of things. And uh, we're starting to think like, oh God, he's an ax murderer. He's gonna kill us, I know it, I know it. And like Dwayne and I are looking at each other and there came to a point where there's this mirror that was stuck in a tree and the headlights of our car flashed back at us. And I, oh God, we, we really felt like that was it, you know, the psycho moment, you know? And then all of a sudden we heard the sound of music. <laughs> And he pulls in and there's this old cabin and all of these people are sitting on the front porch and there's these two, two uh, banjo players. One's a young kid like me. And there's this other, this old guy, you know, and he's got this homemade banjo and he's sitting there. And, and, uh, and so I came over and I took my banjo out. And, you know, I start to play something like Cripple Creek. And they're smiling and everything, and and uh, and the old man he goes, uh, "Well, my name is Sam Hunt. I've been living here in the Pine Barrens all of my life. You know, I make these banjos myself. I have the wood. I hide them underneath of my bed. You know, everywhere you go, there's some wood. And I build old boats too. I got lots of boats." And this guy kept talking, like he wasn't taking a breath. He was like talking fast and furious. And I'm listening to him. I never heard anybody like old Sam Hunt. And then he goes, well, we're going to play that old Joe Clark. You know that one? Well, I saw it in the book, but I didn't know it. Yeah. And he stops and he calms down and he goes, well, we're going to teach it to you right now. He goes, you take your finger and slide it down like that. Can you do that? I went, he said, good. He said, put one finger behind the other. Now pull off like this. I did that. Then hit it open. Then fret that finger on the second string on the first fret. And I did it. Hit it open. So I went. And then we started playing that song. And, uh, you know, so I was traveling around and, and, you know, sometimes I'd be hitchhiking. I had my banjo, always carried my banjo with me. I'm driving. I was, I was 
hitchhiking one time and the car is driving and he he was first on the other side of the highway he turns around and he wants to pick me up and i look in the back and he's got a banjo sitting in the back <laughs> he goes where are you going and i told him that i was going to see some friends to play some music I goes, oh, great but first let's go see my friend and then we drove over to some other guy's house <laughs> and and uh, he played some some music we played music together and then we all together went over to my friend's house and stayed there they they stayed the whole night and uh boy it, we played music all night long and you know barney that's the whole thing was once this music came into your life it was like a a journey right now it was taking you all over the place and i you know i i was still in high school now i'm starting to play with all these different people and i would go to these pete seeger concerts all the time you know and, and I, I i got to see him and maybe say a word or two but i didn't know him but uh, he was playing over in central park with arlo guthrie and my mother took my two sisters that day they went down there and uh all the people were setting out old blankets and stuff. And uh, my sister Lisa says, uh, what are you doing? And they said, well, the Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie are gonna be here. My, my sister recognized the name Pete Seeger because I had all these records and right. books. And she kind of thought that we were like really close because you know I had all of these records that I must really know Pete. And so she said, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> she took my younger sister and they went over to the guy who's near, near the gate and they said, my, my brother's uh, backstage with Pete Seeger. Can you take us there? And he does. Now, I don't know anything about this, but Pete, they go and visit with Pete and his wife, Toshi, and they have a talk or something like that. And I know nothing about that. Later on in the night, you know, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I hear Pete say, well, tomorrow we're going to have a big concert over in Hoboken, New Jersey. Benefit for the Clearwater. Everybody's invited. So... Uh, I'm all excited the next morning. I take my banjo, I'm ready to go out the back uh, door. And my sister says, did you know that Pete Seeger files his nails? Said, what? <laughs> and then, you know, I get over to Hoboken. There's a few young people like myself. And like many times before, I take out my banjo. I'm playing along with them. Who comes over? But Pete yeah. he takes out his big guitar and he's smiling and he's playing along. I'm freaking out, Barney. I'm saying like, oh my God. You know, here I am playing with Pete Seeger, you know, and the music stops and Pete looks at, look, he, the music stops. He looks at me and he goes, I haven't seen you before. Who are you? And I stumble out, uh, I'm Rick Polari. He goes, Rick, I met your sisters yesterday. I'm like, <laughs> they told me you were a good banjo player. Let's go up on the stage. We'll play a couple songs together. Wow. He brought me up. And I stayed and uh, played played the whole show with with some of the Clearwater uh, other young people and Pete, and then Pete started calling me up, and then my world changed for me. That was that was the beginning. Wow. And and it's one thing you know when you have a dream, you know, like I had a dream that someday I would meet Pete, and once that happened, that was when the real work began, because well, what are you going to do? Well, you going to play with him again? Well, I hope so, but the bigger journey happens because then you have to figure out what are you going to do with your life? Right. How are you going to become a musician? And that's what the, this book is sort of about that, that journey, you know, of learning uh, the songs from Pete and Sis Cunningham at the early on learning the union songs. And uh, that was the beginning of that later on at the, like I said, that's one of the reasons I had to write this book is because so early on when I was, you know, 
learning the the labor songs uh, from about Almanac singers from from Pete and and listening to stories from Sis Cunningham, I uh, I was really enthusiastic about this tour that that Pete Woody Guthrie Mill Lampell. Uh, and Lee Hayes did as the Almanac Singers in 1941. There was a paragraph in Pete's book, The Incomplete Folk Singer, that talked about it. And, uh, and so I was really fired up and I talked to Sis Cunningham because she was in the Almanac Singers later on. She told me things about it. And as I got to know Pete, I would always ask him questions about the Almanacs. And I had this idea back in the 1980s that I would recreate that 1941 tour. Hmm. And Pete was enthusiastic and he started, you know, giving me all kinds of contacts. Now I was too green. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd call up these union halls and they go, what do you want, kid? And I said, well, I wanted to do this show honoring the almanacs. Almanac, schmalmanac, we're not interested in no almanac singers <laughs> because of their, you know, their background of, of being, you know, uh, really kind of radical. Right. Uh, they, did, they didn't want to talk about it. And I got a little discouraged and I put that in my files uh, and, and kept it there for many years. I kept thinking about it. I kept trying to do that. And then I was on tour and on um, with my friend Rick Nessler and another Rick, Rick Bala. We were called the, the Ricks. We were out there performing together. And uh, uh, we got invited to the Woody Guthrie archives. Okay. Uh, and uh, Woody's daughter, Nora Guthrie, brought us in and showed us all these writings of, from, from Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and everybody. And I said to Nora, I said, do they have a lot of material about the Almanac singers here? And she said, yes. And that lit another light bulb. So I, I, I kind of saved that idea. I, got, I kept asking people if they were interested in doing something. I didn't have the right contacts or the right you know, connections with the unions to really get the job done. Right. A friend of mine, George Mann, was a, also a folk singer, labor singer. Uh, he, uh, through a mutual friend, uh, we started playing together and I told George about this idea. And George said, let's do it. And before you know it, here it was. And I went back to the Woody Guthrie archives and I spent a whole day reading through all of the articles and writing things down. And then I spent a whole day with Pete Seeger and he told all of these stories about the almanacs. So then we had this whole master puzzle of what took place in 1941. And, uh, and then we started union halls hmm. and this time they were interested. Okay. George booked the last gig that the Almanacs did was in Buffalo, uh, and uh, first. So then we then we had this time limit that we had to actually fit the whole thing in, because we were following the path of the Almanac singers. Okay. Right. Exactly the well, not totally exactly because sometimes it was impossible, but as much as we could, we followed that that original 1941 tour. And when I did the research at the Woody Guthrie Center, I found out what they they really would happen back then is they uh, they were singing for the um, transport workers union in Madison Square Garden for twenty thousand uh, uh, workers there, and one of the delegates from the West Coast uh, started talking to Mill Lampell, 
And he said, why don't you come out, you know, out to California? So they, and then they started having that uh, tour and they needed a, a way to get around. And so they made two records, four records, and they were able to buy a, uh, a 1932 Midnight Blue Buick touring car. Wow. That was formerly owned by a gangster named Joey the Mouth. <laughs> now, supposedly Joey didn't need it anymore. So when the Almanacs got it, it had bulletproof glass <laughs> and it had lead shields in the sidewalls. And uh, that's what they toured around in. So I started really learning about what took place. And then George and I did it. We did 9,000 miles across the United States playing in union halls in the same towns as the Almanac Singers. And that's, wow. that's sort of like the book really tells you all about what it was like, not only our tour, but the original tour, and also why did they go to those places? What was the union history there? Right. Now, I'm, I'm a member of the local 1000 Musicians Union. So, you know, uh, it, it was one of those kind of things. It was a, a lot of pride to be able to go into all of these union halls and to be sharing that story. So that's like one of the, the many, many different adventures that, uh, that you find in, in the book. And uh, I guess one of the stories, would you like me to read a, a short little story? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the stories, in fact, once again, I mean, Pete was so important in, in my life that he was constantly uh, pointing me the way and, and opening up uh, more and more opportunities for me. And so, you know, the very first time this song was in print was from Pete. Right. He, he, I had sent them this, you know, cause I would send them letters, you know, send them letters back and forth. I have like 64 letters from Pete Seeger giving me advice on all kinds of things. <laughs> and, and so I used to send him things and I sent him this letter and it, he gave me a call and he said, Rick, he said, I didn't tell you, but pick up the sing out magazine. I put your story in there. Mm. So he put my story in his column, in his apple seeds column. And, and this little story, uh, it was really interesting because then other people started, you know, the, the, the chicken soup for the soul. Uh, they have uh, stories for a better world. They printed the story and right. more and more people kept printing it. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's a, an interesting story. Now this is, I'm just kind of finishing a tour up in Alaska. Okay, I was up in Alaska. I, I did a tour on the Maritime Highway. I, I was, uh, yeah, back then, if you were a performer, you could book yourself on the ferry and go from Bellingham, Washington, all the way up uh, on the ferry to Juneau. Uh, and then the, the ferry, what I was able to do was book extra things. So I went all the way out to, uh, to Haines and, uh, and did shows by float plane. So I talk a lot about that, but I'm coming back and I'm really tired. I'm wanting to go home and here we go. Okay. I was just getting back from touring Alaska and was ready to fly home out of Bellingham, Washington. But notice there was some kind of problem. The counter person was throwing her hands up in front 
Houston, telling everyone all the planes were having problems and they would not be able to fly today. You can just imagine the stress that was in that room. They told us that a bus would be provided to take us to Seattle. That was just a chance that some of us would be able to make our connections. Everyone was worried. We only had an hour and a half to make the connecting flights and the bus was not even at the airport yet. When the bus did finally pull up, the driver said in a nasty tone, well, they just pulled me out of bed after an all night shift and they expect me to perform a miracle and get you to Seattle in time to catch your flight. Good luck. Needless to say, Everyone was in a really bad mood. I was loading my stuff into the bus. I had slung my banjo over my back when the bus driver said, what, are you gonna play that thing in my bus? Well, I really didn't plan on it, I replied. I was only kidding, said the driver. But I started thinking about it and I reached inside my case and I pulled out my banjo. Well, what if I don't like it? said an angry, worried woman. Then tell me and I'll stop, I replied. The bus drove off and the tension was horrendous. Then I started plucking away at a neat version of the old standard blue skies that I had learned from Pete Seeger. In a few minutes, I noticed that everyone was humming along. A few more minutes went by and I heard a few voices singing. I started singing too. And before long, the whole bus burst out in song. Even the bus driver sang along in his big baritone. One song led to another. And everyone seemed to have a request. Do you know you are my sunshine? Soon, photographs appeared as the passengers made friends and shared pictures of vacations family members, newborn babies, and old friends. Everyone laughed and sang with food being passed around the bus. Before we knew it, we we're pulling into the Seattle airport. We made it with time to spare, the bus driver called out. Everyone clapped their hands. Then he said, we would have never done it without the help of our banjo player. <laughs> Shouts of approval rang through the bus. As I got out, the people exchanged address and invitations and few exchanged hugs. And then we all went our separate ways. This was the best ride I ever had, the driver said as I was leaving the bus. Thanks for your music. A few weeks later, back in the hills of Old Vermont, my mailbox was filled with letters and reminiscence of that magical musical bus ride. Wow. <laughs> and that and that's the whole thing is is that music is the door it, it's a communication door in these times when people have a hard time talking to one another because of politics you can play music together mm. you know you can play music no matter what your politics are right. you can share food together you can share stories together. And that is the beginning of that bridge that connects us. Right. Yeah. 
So let me ask you then, Rick, because you've been, as I think you said in your biography, you've been doing this well on 50 years. There, what was stopping your book from being 526 pages to being 1,026 pages? What stories, what parts did you have to cut out that you, they, you must have had, a, had to do some editing on some of that stuff? Well, luckily, I had a wonderful editor, yeah. uh, Tim Brooks. I don't know if you know Tim, he's written a lot of books and he's involved with the Endangered Alpha, Alphabet Project. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he wrote this wonderful book that you you got to have him on your show sometime okay. because he, he is a fantastic uh, author. And he wrote this book, A Hell of a Place to Lose a Cow about <laughs> his hiking adventures. And anybody who writes a book like that has to be my friend. Mm -hmm. So we, we were friends for many, many years uh, and we would we would have coffee time. We would meet uh, over at uh, Speeder and Earl's and we would sit around and we would discuss the different projects. And I told him I was working on this book and he said, well, let me take a look at it. So I, I gave it to him. and He said, I'll help you. I'll help you. Yeah. And he said, don't worry about it. And uh, so he kind of gave me advice into shaping the book. Okay. And so we we kind of determined, Barney, that. A, the you know the stories had to have a couple of different things. They e either had to be a teaching kind of a story where where you learn something. They had to be a, a funny story, you know. They had to be sort of a, a a sad kind of story about life, you know. Those those are the criteria that we we kind of used. So um, we went through a lot of the stories because there's a lot of the stories that are in my first book that did not make the cut into the second book. Uh, and I wanted it to, once again, you know, to celebrate uh, my mentors. And so I wanted it to really show that, you know, when Pete came into my life is when my life really changed. And at the end of the book, we say goodbye to Pete mm -hmm. at a huge concert at a Lincoln Center in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are all my friends from the Sloop Clearwater, all the musicians that I worked with, a lot of the musicians that, that I admired, like Peter Yarrow uh, and Harry Belafonte, and, and all, they were all there. Everybody was there honoring Pete. And I felt that that was the perfect way that uh that told the whole story right you know so that that was that was important to me that i wanted to have that in there and uh you know the things that didn't get in well you know that's okay is there is there, is there any thoughts of maybe looking at doing something else like an addendum book to this or anything for the stories that didn't make the cut that well you know, wanted people to hear about you know, I, I think that uh, right now uh, I'm working on some creative projects of uh, I'm doing all of these watercolor paintings that I'm hoping to illustrate a children's book about. Uh, oh, I should tell you that story. OK, so I was down in a, in a hobo jungle, uh, you know, down in Pennsburg. You know, and and the hobo, and, and I'm not talking about bumps here. You know, Barney, the, the whole thing is as a hobo historically was a worker. It was somebody who works and wanders. You know, Utah Phillips used to say, a hobo works and wanders. A tramp dreams and wanders. 
and a bum just drinks and wanders. <laughs> so you never you never call an old steam train riding hobo a bum. Right. It's disrespectful. They can call each other bums, right. you know, and, and they would, yeah. but don't don't do that. Right. Because they were they 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 were agricultural workers, you know. I mean, it all goes back to the old days, you know, after the Civil War, where sort of like Vietnam, you know, in Vietnam, how it was hard for certain people to go back to life after the carnage that they experienced was right. the same thing in in the Civil War with brothers fighting against brothers and and the the country being divided. That these guys they they were called homeward bounds. And they they were going home, but they were going home slow. Mm. And they would go and, and and hop the trains, and they would carry uh, a pole. Now in the cartoons, they show a pole with a bandana on it. That wasn't it. The pole was to screw into a shovel, okay, or a rake, okay. to make the job easier. They were workers, and you know they they had you know all these different you know signs. The the sign of the shovel. That's right. what they, they, you'd find the the sign of the shovel. Uh, scratched into the, you know, into a, the, maybe a water, the water tower, you know, right. showing that there's work in town. But anyway, so we're we're over at the Hobo Jungle where some of the old time steam riders were still living. They were still living, you know. They didn't live that long, but they were they were there, and they'd sit around the campfire and they would tell stories. And uh, there was a queen of the hobos and and a king of the hobos. They were elected by their peers. Wow. And if you were a friend of the hobos, you would get dubbed. They gave me honorary names. They they get they dubbed me the uh the what's the the grand duke of new england hobos <laughs> and yeah that that and, and 20 uh and two dollars might get you a cup of coffee right <laughs> but uh so i i learned a lot from them and, and wrote a lot of songs uh, about that you know and um, so i just realized that rick so the hobo is short for homeward bound yeah yeah that's one of one of, one of the old things but I think that that gives you the sense of how people, um, you know, sometimes we uh, as storytellers, as, as, as songwriters, you know, we tell other people's stories because, right. you know, they might not have that gift to do that. And we can celebrate their life by putting their life into, into a song. Right. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. And so, and is that is that one of your stories that's going to be that's in the book? Oh yeah, yeah. That there's there's a, a much more, much more detailed thing about about that and and how we we were in a boxcar and experienced uh, this major hurricane <laughs> and what that was like. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's a, a few different stories about uh, about the hobo jungles uh, that that I've been to. Yeah, uh, we had. I mean, this is great, Rick. I mean, we have, as I said, you got, I, we didn't even get to talk about Polish bagpipes. We didn't even get to talk about all this other stuff. So what I want to do is I want to show people your website mm -hmm. at rickpolary.com. Yes. This is where you can see your, your book is here. You have also all the lyrics to all your songs is on here. You have a great expansive website. People can get lost on this for hours. There's plenty of things to read, plenty of things to to talk about on here as well. So what I like to do, Rick, is like when you get your children's book out, 
come back mm -hmm. on the show and we should talk about it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. So far, I've got about 40, 40 drawings done. Uh, you know, well, I have more than that, but you know, I, I'm I'm just trying to figure out exactly the the best ones. Um, but I'm hoping to illustrate that that uh, that whole. Um, uh, you know, I've got some really really cool pictures. You know, already about about right. that, and uh, so that's that's one of the projects that that I'm hoping to do. And I think you know, I feel like in order for me to write another another kind of a sequel to, to this book, I have to right. do a lot more traveling. Or at least, you know, have a real understanding of, of what that's like, you know. I mean, people are always, um, you know, inspired by different things. It's been, I tell you what, though, Rick, it's been a genuine pleasure talking with you right now. And people can buy your book because they, they go to your website and yes, they're able yeah. to, to get it we, there. We made the choice. I mean, my first book was on Amazon and and, and that kind of thing. Right. And my wife and I talked about it and we felt like we wanted it to be a personal interaction between me and the readers right. so that it wasn't on Amazon. It's not on Amazon. Right. And it, it is a kind of thing where people go to my website and, and order the book. I hand sign them. My wife makes uh, a, a leather, my, you know, she's a book uh, book binder. So she makes a leather bookmark uh, and put a thank you card in it. You don't get that with Amazon. That's true. You yeah. know, we want it to be, you know, like you took the time to want my book. I take the time to make you um, something special. Right. Yeah. Well, great. So thank you. So thank you very much, Rick. So they can come to rickpolari.com. Mm -hmm. And they'll be able to to see your book right there, and uh, and um, yeah, and yeah, come on back, Rick. This has been fun. <laughs> uh, probably a little bit different than than what you usually do. <laughs> this has been great. Yeah, <laughs> well, I just felt that you can't really just talk about music. I had to share some music with you. I hope you didn't mind. <laughs> no, that was perfect. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs>